Lambert und Karl-Heinz Riele 1 zu 0 für Borussia Dortmund. Quite unusually for the pod, we're recording here on a Monday night, and that is because we're in the midst of a poker week with games on Tuesday and Wednesday. And uh, I think it's fair to say the standout fixture of the round has to be the Berlin Derby between Hertha and Union. That's why we decided to do an episode dedicated to the latter and discuss matters on and off the pitch. And I've actually asked a friend of the pod and Union member, Kyle Walsh, to, Kyle Walsh to come on. He's called Kyle Walsh. Uh, we had uh, we had Kyle on last season uh, to preview one of the league derbies, and this time we've gotten back on to talk about the, the cup game coming up. Uh, but it seems like so much has changed since you were your last on. I mean, qualified for Europe and now chasing Champions League. Uh, how, how have you been in that that long time? Uh, generally, all right. Uh, yeah, it's been a crazy, crazy. I could say I could say twelve months, but even like since like essentially since Urs Fisher uh, became the 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 co- head coach of the club, it's been it's stuff beyond the wildest dreams. You know, getting from getting promoted um, to then you know staying up that first season, qualifying for Europe with the last basically the last kick of the season as well against uh, against the marketing construct, and then and uh, now you know. We were in the Champions League spots for a bit at the weekend. There, it, it's it's ridiculous. And given you know, there's a lot of factors that play against the team in terms of budget and stuff like that. It's yeah, it's fairy tale stuff. So I know so much. So much has happened, and apparently, in the time that time as well, uh, you now work in the same workplace as me, which I didn't realise. I'm not going to mention what that is, just in, just in case. Uh, just in case I say anything which uh, can be held against me at a later date uh, on this podcast. But we've got, also got two of our, our regular co-hosts on as well, um, Robert Haggis, who might also be able to offer some valuable insight, insight into the, the subject matter, uh, as uh, you undertook an internship at Union a few years ago, didn't you, Robert? That's correct, yeah. Um, so I studied at a business school in the south of Germany in Reutlingen. It's quite funny because quite a lot of my people on my course did sort of typical internships at consulting, banking, accountancy, that kind of thing. And I did um, an internship, media and communications in the in Union's Academy for six months from uh, February 2018 to July 2018. Um, and so, yeah, it was quite funny what Kyle was saying because actually the fortunes of the club have got a lot better since I left because at that point it's almost getting relegated out of the, out of the Zweite Bundesliga. And, um, uh, yeah. From, from that point onwards, it's been uh, the only way it's been up for Union. So, yeah, interested um, about the topic and obviously uh, kept in touch with people from the club and that kind of thing. I'm looking forward to talking about it this evening. Good stuff. Uh, and we've got George Balakrishna on as well, who's, well, just now he's, he's eating his curry, but uh, he's also readying himself for 1860's big night tomorrow against Karlsruhe. Are you excited? If you, I mean, that's providing you actually get to watch it yeah so as we were mentioning before we started recording looking pretty uh 
pretty um, difficult to watch the game as as it stands, um, given that um, Hartsfield Cole is on at the same time, and that um, maybe not um, Karlsruhe against um, 1860s, maybe not a priority for broadcasters showing in the UK. But um, I wanted to wanted to say one thing actually, Colin, if that's okay with you. Um, called Kyle uh, a friend of the pod, I'd say that given the fact that me and Kyle watched the the Union uh, Hertha game together. Accompanied with maybe the only Hertha Berlin fan in Edinburgh, a uh, slightly unhinged bloke called Andreas. I'd say that we can we can safely call uh, Kyle part of the family of the pod or within the <laughs> pod family. So, uh, yeah, that, I mean, I, like I said, you know, Kyle's got plenty to say about Union and Robert work there. I'm, I'm not entirely sure uh, why I'm really on this evening, but, uh, what I, but I hope I can um, offer some, some opinions or... Uh, Maybe I can share my experience of, of going to Union myself, and that might be of some worth. I thought, yeah, I thought you were going to say there, uh, we called, called Kyle a friend of the pod, and you're going to say, actually, Kyle is a friend of me and not the pod. Since which, been, which is, which is true, which is true as well. <laughs> trying to one-up me and the rest of us who haven't had the privilege of meeting Kyle in person. Although I have emailed Kyle, and I, I'm, I'm sure you haven't said that, I'm sure you can't say that, um, but we're we're going off on a tangent now. Uh, I think starting off, uh, sort of Kyle alluded to a lot of the on-pitch success that Onion have had, not just in the last year or two, but uh, last few years with Urs Fisher being in charge. But I don't think we can really talk about them without mentioning that. Uh, really c- quickly establishing themselves in the Bundesliga, finishing seventh last season, uh, qualifying for the UEFA Conference League. I mean, it's probably slightly soured by eventually being knocked out, but you'd have to say it's a, a major success just being able to qualify. I imagine, Kyle. Yeah, uh, it was it was a fairy tale, uh, and it's like, yeah, it was a fairy tale until it wasn't. You know, uh, to for a club with such you know a small budget and uh, and that to go and and qualify for the conference league was was crazy um you know it, it was stuff of dreams you know we we have a song that we sing that you know one day uh onion will play in europe uh well how it would translate anyways uh and we've we've sung that in like the second division and third division and that i, re- I remember the first time i heard it was a, a friendly against qpr where we were getting beat 4-0 at Loftus Road, <laughs> and I, I kind of couldn't believe what I was hearing, but it was, it speaks a lot of the, the attitude that, you know, it's always been uh, a bit of fun and some, we would say some things in jest and that, but yeah, to, to actually go and do it was great. Unfortunately, the restriction, you know, of all the times to qualify for Europe in a pandemic is not when you want to do it. Um you know, restrictions for fans getting to games or, you know, international travel and that. I would have loved to go into every game that I could have, uh, but circumstances meant that meant that I couldn't. And it was a, a shame on a personal note to miss out on it. But yeah, it, it just an incredible achievement and a couple of wins and it was nice. And, you know, we missed out on qualifying for the next round by a goal, but as someone whose Scottish allegiances lie with Celtic, it meant I didn't have to dread going into a draw where Celtic and Onion could face each other, which is a big fear. 
No, it was uh, yeah, such, such a shame with the timing of it. I just I, I do feel sorry for any clubs that have had sort of a bit of a purple patch during this period. Like get teams that have been promoted and relegated during COVID and barely had a full stadium in that time. Um and only on are experiencing that the now. Uh, but yeah, he said that just the sort of dry humour of, of the supporters. Because I remember there was a sort of joking about uh, when they were potentially going to get promoted to the Bundesliga and sort of a, a slight trepidation that that would change the soul of the club, the identity. And now suddenly, not only are they in the Bundesliga, but also managing to qualify for Europe. Uh, something you just couldn't have imagined uh, only three, but even two or three years ago. Uh, but unfortunately, you missed out on the games. But uh, George, you did manage to get to a game against Maccabi Haifa. I would say not only was a shame about the lack of attendance, but also the fact that they were having to play at the Olympia Stadium uh, just because of UEFA's stupid antiquated rules um, against standing at games. But uh, it was still a good atmosphere, wasn't it, George? Yeah, I mean... Um... I must say, obviously, most most Uniona would have been pretty gutted that they couldn't play um, at the Alta First Alive. But for me, as someone who is not an Union fan um, <clears throat> and has had and have already been to the Alta First Alive, but I hadn't been to the Olympia Stadion, um, it was actually very enjoyable for me to to see the the Olympia Stadion, especially at night. It's really quite breathtaking, and this you know, it was. Really strange to see the the Union Berlin flags flying on top of the Olympia Stadion, where the where the Hertha flags usually are, um, and the Union fans that night sat on well the, the main section of them where the the sort of most organised fan groups would have been were on the side of the pitch, which was like kind of directly opposite from where I was, which was they were very very impressive and and as they always do, sort of sung their hearts out um, the whole game. Um, I mean, I think we're probably going to come on to talk about this, but the whole time I was there, I mean, I actually only made the decision to go to that game um, about 11 o'clock that morning uh, and then got the next bus to um, Berlin and got got a ticket because the, the tickets were really cheap. Um, so the whole day for me was really enjoyable. And like, I remember walking or getting the quite long um, S-Bahn to the, to the stadium and, um, you know, on the walk there, I saw plenty of, Uniona talking to um, Maccabi Haifa fans and they were kind of, uh, there was like, you know, exchanging different uh, stories and that um, there was like one guy who was teaching, um, some, swapping some Hebrew for some German and it all seemed very, very, um, very jovial really. And I, spe- I think that's especially important given the um, his- historical background of the Olympia Stadion. Um, there was there was the build during the Nazi times by by the Nazis for the 1936 Olympics. Um, so I think well, obviously what happened afterwards we'll, we'll come on to talk about. But for me, the whole atmosphere from just from what I saw was was really really pleasant. And you know, a lot I'm as sort of read and been made aware that for a lot of Maccabi Haifa fans, I know certainly for some of the board which which were given a um, a tour of the Outer First Alive before the game. They, this was their first time um, ever coming to Germany, which is obviously coming from Israel is, is going to be um, emotionally quite a, a, diff, a difficult thing, um, given the um, historical connotations. So, you know, I, I saw plenty of Uniona being very, very welcoming to, to the Maccabi Haifa fans. And 
um Union one as well um and they also had um two liter um beer cups which was one of the highlights for me because i find one one or, or no sorry not two liter that would be ridiculous one liter i meant two pints <laughs> two liter would be <laughs> i wouldn't even be able to carry that um of one liter is in two because i always find that one 500 mil is like i kind of will drink that in about 30 minutes then i'll doesn't quite last a half but Alita was was really satisfying for for half or half time or whatever um and yeah like I said Union Union one got to saw got to see um, my heroes Tyro Awani and Max Cruiser in the flesh um although Cruiser didn't even start that game um strangely but um yeah that was was very very enjoyable game only to be slightly marred by by what I found out um had happened after the game yeah we're, we're gonna get onto that onto some of the more controversial um, elements but yeah I mean I, I think it was a it made that I suppose it was a downside the Olympic Stadium having to be used for the games but it, it probably made it have slightly more of a sense of occasion uh, the Olympic Stadium sort of associated with big games like cup finals and it probably gave the Union fans a, a certain amount of joy with seeing the, the track and red and as you say, the, the club flags up at the stadium. Yeah, I remember um, on the even I, I remember I got on um, the S-Bahn at Warschauerstrasse, which is like um, in Friedrichshain in East Berlin, and there were like there were Union fans there who were even though it's it's just one line to the Olympiastadion, many of the Unioners seemed quite confused as to how you actually get to the Olympiastadion because they've just never been there before. Um, they would have had no reason to go there, so. Um, I just thought that that was quite funny because yeah, you're right. It, was, it did feel like um, a, a real sense of occasion, like they were doing because they'd never, or they had qualified for Europe um, before, but um, they were. Am I right saying that they weren't allowed to compete uh, because of? Um, so maybe me and Carl will explain that. Did they did they qualify and then they weren't allowed to play or something like that? Uh, so first time they qualified for Europe after winning the East German Cup in 1968, uh, they weren't allowed to compete because Celtic lodged a protest after the Prague Spring that all uh, Eastern Bloc nations couldn't compete uh, in it, and essentially they get kicked out of Europe as a result. Uh, and then in 2001, when they played in the UEFA qualified for the UEFA Cup, uh, whilst uh, well, they qualified when they were in the third division by reaching the final of the German Cup and losing to Schalke in the final. Uh, that the first uh, uh, the first tie they were in class, uh, was like the weekend after nine eleven, and it was <laughs> in Finland. So f- for fans to get there was an absolute nightmare as well. So um, every yeah, qualifying for Europe is a bit of a curse at the moment. But uh, you know, fingers crossed for some time in the future. Yeah, yeah, that was it. So yeah, so well, like they, it was probably like their maybe their first um, trip sort of in earnest in, into Europe, and that that was kind of the the, the feeling I got. Like I said, I I have sympathy towards Union, but I'm not I'm not an Union fan, so it was quite quite nice to um to to be there and feel that I was being a part of, part of that um that sense of occasion that they that that was their first proper venture into Europe anyway. Yeah, well, uh, messed out this time, but it could. This could become uh, more of a, a regular thing if Union continue with their current progress this season, particularly. Uh, could qualify again, and hopefully next season they're actually 
will be crowds. But I suppose there's still the still the lingering issue about the the stadium and UEFA's rules. Games would still have to be at the Olympic Stadium. But who knows? Maybe maybe they could even try to fill it if that the rules allowed in the future. Yeah. Well, yeah. I would say. Well, sorry. Uh, just to sorry. kind of come in on that, uh, the, the playing in the Olympia Stadium in this season of all. There was a, it was a little bit of a blessing in disguise. I would rather not play any games there because uh, it's not the best ground for football, uh, in my opinion. Any ground where a running track should not be hosting football games. But um, it did mean, given the, the pandemic, that more fans got to go to these games. And given the, you know, the historical context of that for the club, that it's not it's it's a rarity to play in Europe. There's a kind of a blessing in disguise. Uh, one downside of that is that the Olympia Stadion has got to be the worst pitch I've ever seen. It's like I've seen potato patches that you know are smoother. It's uh, every game it was getting cut up and and that uh, particularly was at the Feyenoord game where it was raining as well. It was just a mud bath. Um, but yeah, a, a, a slight blessing in disguise. But uh, like you say, if the, if European qualification were uh, were to happen again, hopefully the club would then, you know, look at investing in rail seats or something like that to mm-hmm. to allow the games to be played where they should be, or you, you know, yeah, if I change their mind and change a ridiculous ruling, but there's uh, less chance of that, I think. Well, you see how the I don't know the ridiculous opposition, the sort of safe standings getting in England, uh, that police. Superintendent, whatever he was, um, chief constable that was talking about like, race, equating racism with standing, and uh, I don't know. I just like, do you not pay any attention to other countries like games in Germany and stuff where that this has been going on? I just don't understand it. And UEFA seem to have a a summer attitude, but it, it's not surprising. Um, I would say. I was going to say, um, is the, the guy who's responsible for the introducing the safe standing at um, Chelsea and Man City, the guy, he's, um, he's, a, he's an Union fan, isn't he? He's an English guy. Um, so presumably he's petitioning for, for the, he's going to have some role in, in those being implemented in the out of first row. Um, yeah, I, I think you're on about John Darsh, who has campaigned for safe standing uh, throughout, like throughout the UK for ages. And is uh, if your if your club and if you're in the UK and your club has got safe standing, be that Celtic or Kilmarnock in uh, in Scotland, and I don't know who has it down south. I really don't care for English football, but. Um, He's played a massive role in that, and he is uh, he is an Onion fan, and uh, uh, and yeah, uh, I would imagine he'll probably knock on the door, uh, send some emails and that, and see what can be done uh, if that were to be the case. Um, but you know, you you have to get there first, uh, and the, I I I wouldn't see it to be a a wise investment to to buy them if you're not going to qualify because at the end of the day the less games you have where you're having to ruin the terraces with real seats the better do do you think do you think the the ultras would be 
um, I know they've got sort of a very um, a concrete idea of what they think um, football stadia and football matches should compose of. Do you think that they would be um, outwardly against those being put in the stadium? I don't think they'd be against... Well, they would be against it, but they would go with it, if that makes sense. Like, they would potentially protest or have a banner against it. But given the alternative is playing games at the Olympia Stadion, I think, you know, you take putting in rail seats for the time being if it, if it means playing your games... If it means playing European games at, uh, at the Alta First Array. But, of course, the ideal solution is that, you know, Onion doesn't need to change your ground in any way and people go and enjoy football as it should be. But... Um, Oh, sorry, that's copyright to the Bundesliga, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, unfortunately, that seems to be that would seem to be the best of uh, best option of a bad bunch. I think uh, legally you're protected. Is that is actually football as it's meant to be, not not as it should be? So I think I think you've managed to um, negotiate your way through some uh, le- legal uh, difficulties there. It's all good. Despite the positivity from a footballing perspective, I would say uh, the main talking points we wanted to cover today are, were some of the, the off-field issues that have plagued the club, like particularly during the pandemic. Uh, I think, and I think this will be particularly interesting to a lot of the, the UK-based listeners, which I'd imagine is pretty much all of our listeners, um, apart from a, a select few. Because uh, the, the club does get a lot of exposure in the English-speaking media, but it... I feel like it's almost to the point of cliche that you hear about the same things over and over again. And it's always about the fans building the stadium, the whole donating blood. You pretty much hear the same things over and over again. Anyone that watched BT Sport when they showed the Bundesliga will know that because the commentators just sort of repeated the same stories. And it always tends to be the positive that you hear about them. But often I think there's the negative stories get swept aside and particularly for me, that living out of outside of Germany, I'm not really exposed to the German-speaking media so much. So I've maybe missed some of the stories. I think it'd be quite interesting to talk about some of that. Is uh, a lot of listeners won't have heard about that. Um, so I suppose with, with Robert, you being at the club a few years ago, it might make sense to start with you to talk about this. Um, have you? Have you always been of the image that the club sort of tries to project a certain image of itself um, in, in terms of criticism, I would say? I think it's different for me because as I was, um, as I was mentioning before, I was there at a time when the club wasn't particularly successful internationally. So um, they just installed uh, Ross Dunbar, who I think is sort of quite well known in the German footballing scene, as the sort of international media guy uh, in the summer of 2017. And I was there, uh, yeah, February 2018 to um, July 2018. And as I was saying before, that was sort of a time when they were fighting more against relegation uh, from the second division. And when I was telling my my family and my and my friends at home that I was working for Union Berlin, I don't think anyone had ever heard of them. Um, obviously, they've heard of the city of Berlin, but generally heard of, heard of Hertha and that kind of thing. Um, yeah and so like you said it was then it was more after their promotion um, in uh, May of 2019 that then I think uh, it was at that point that the BT Sport film was um, was released 
and also there's been the the copper 90 film that was um uh released a bit a bit before that but i think it was sort of more as you were saying more sort of during during that time that um the the hype about about union um came about but yeah i think whilst whilst i was there i mean i was that's <laughs> quite a quite a naive 20 year old at that point um it was such a it was such an, an amazing experience because it's just something so different to what I'd experienced um in England obviously a um a stadium with standing on three sides uh my parents came out to visit as well and we watched the game against Jan Regensburg and my mum was really uh keen that they served Glühwein at halftime as well because that was during um perhaps the coldest spell on record I think in 2018 the beast from the east when we couldn't feel our, our hands and toes at the end of the game um so, so yeah, I've, I've, I've rambled on a bit there but uh but yes yeah, so it's, it's certainly it's certainly a special club I think over the past sort of two years particularly whilst I've been in the Bundesliga that um the image has certainly certainly changed yeah I mean I remember I remember the first time Kay was on I made the made the comparison that they used to get with St Pauli and he sort of rolled his eyes uh which I don't think you see that as much now. I think the impression, when I'd just started hearing about Union Berlin, I'd always heard of them described as a left-wing club, uh, which I think more and less people sort of have that impression of them now. They know them a bit more. So it's like a working-class club, not a, an exclusively left-wing club. Um, but I know... So you, you must have spent a lot of time around the academy, Robert. Um, I know that's... I'm not really too familiar with this story, but um, George, put your hand up. Uh, sorry, yeah, but just before 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 you go into um, this, I, I, I just was thinking about um, you know the idea of um, when people say, "Oh, the Union's a left wing club," and whatever. Um, you also hear people a lot of the time, um, as I've kind of researched more, describe um, Union as a resistance club. Um, to the Stasi during the East Germany, which um, I think is um, largely uh, untrue uh, based on what I've found out. And well, um, Jacob Sweetman, who I think we're all familiar with, big, big Union fan, also um, from where I'm from uh, in the world, um, he made the point that um, although there were sort of um, people with perhaps uh, rebel tendencies within um Union during the time of the, the DDR, the idea of it being um, uh, an opposition or, or a club um, is pretty pretty much un- unfounded, given that um, you couldn't be you know, in in a totalitarian regime like like the like the DDR. You couldn't you couldn't have a, an establishment that was that was outwardly um, standing in opposition to to the regime. So that that's just another thing that I that I hear um, get thrown around when people talk about Union that. Um, you know they've they came out of the the fall of the Berlin Wall that sort of triumphant over the the Stasi and the East German regime, which I think is another um, kind of thing about like oh, they're an entirely left wing club like with Saint Pauli that the people might want to kind of realise is perhaps it's not it's not quite like how it's been portrayed in the English speaking media. But sorry, please uh, continue. Differs slightly what I was about to ask Robert, but. Um... I was I was gonna ask I was gonna start to move on to some of the more controversial issues at play. Uh, so Robert, you spent some time you did your internship with the academy. Uh, so one of the stories I'm slightly 
I heard about, but I'm slightly less familiar about, is uh, the story that broke out uh, a while ago about the academy players uh, from migrant backgrounds. Is there anything you can fill us in with that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll try and keep this as concise as possible. But when I was at the academy, um, it was quite clear that uh, Union were sort of the second power in the city, as it were. So um, Hertz were obviously at that point have been in the Bundesliga um, for a lot longer and um, had a lot more financial resources. And Union had been trying over the past three years with uh, Andre Meyer and their head scout in the academy, Oliver Rathenau, who's currently, I think, head scout at um, Bayern Munich. So he's obviously done quite well for himself. Um, but they were trying to use the sort of um, areas of Berlin with, um, yeah, sort of more uh, migrant backgrounds. So places also in the West as well, like Wedding, um, Neukölln, places like that, looking more uh, for players there. So players that weren't, um, sorry, places that weren't necessarily tapped for um, talent. Um, but yeah, as we're sort of discussing uh, in the break as well. So then in uh, the summer of 2018, Andre Hofschneider, who uh, himself was part of the academy in the 80s and 90s, uh, played for the club and had been at the club since 2006 in various different roles. He was the assistant manager for the first team for uh, nine years or so. He then took over as the um, sort of manager of the academy. And from 2018 until uh, 2021, um, the quota of players born in 2003 and 2004 with a Turkish or Arabic background reduced from 40 to 10 percent inside inside two years and so there were some journalists from uh, Bosnia News and the Merkish Algemeine Zeitung who um, released this article in May 2021 they actually sent their their questions to the club um, and the club agreed to have a have a meeting with the journalists um, but then a week uh, a day before the meeting was supposed to take place. They then published all of the questions um, and their vague answers on the club homepage. Um, and the way that the way they went about dealing um, with the with the questions from the journalists was a bit strange. And yeah, so um, it, it wasn't just the fact that uh, there had been this sort of supposed um, quota of players with a uh, with a migration background but also the way they sort of dealt with the players if they were being um if they when they were leaving the academy sort of some players have been there for eight or eight or eight ten years and had just been told tomorrow you're supposed to be you're supposed to be leaving the academy um apparently andre hofschneider was um very hard uh, a hard disciplinarian and um sort of lacking the emotional intelligence some people describe some of the ex-players described him as a dictator as well and it just seems that the general sort of atmosphere around the academy wasn't so good and yeah, so as I said, the the, um, the the club published these questions, but also turned on the journalists, saying they were looking to bring Union down with anonymous sources. Um, they provided suggestive questions to the players and had already made up their mind before they'd started the article. So um, yeah, you, you don't want to throw the words around lightly, but it's sort of a quite a, a Trumpian way of dealing with some of the some of the allegations. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know if Carl has any thoughts or anything to add if I've left anything out there that you thought was important. Uh, I've not much to add, but yeah, the communications uh, and that will kind of be covered in a, a lot of these bits is uh, 
a bit of a letdown uh, is from from my own perspective. I don't I don't I don't speak for the the club uh, or like the fan base. I, I'll speak only for myself as a member of this club. But yeah, it's something that kind of becomes apparent through these things is that communication is um, not the not the approach I would take as someone who's studied that in that area. Um, yeah, it's it was a bit strange and, you know, something that, you know, we haven't heard much about since. Um, like, to go out on the offensive was quite quite odd to start with. Uh, nothing has been heard since. But then, at the same time, the academy hasn't produced many players in, in, in the time I've been, I've been following the club since 2017, I would say 2016. Uh, and yeah, uh, I cannot think of off the top of my head of uh, of many players that have played in maybe the last three, four years. I think Scribsky, Stephen Scribsky uh, was probably the last big product to come out of the to come out of the academy and there's a few that maybe played in his white league of days but uh there's some that are maybe a couple of years away but yeah there's not much that's come through yeah sorry yeah i think that was part of the article only three players have made the step up from the academy is the first team since since 2010 and that's sort of what um what i was trying to lose with the start my answer as well is that union definitely would have a huge sort of strategic advantage if they did use the just the huge, the, the mere size of Berlin and the melting pot that it brings to improve their academy. And it seems like a very, very strange route to go down to, to limit the amount of players. Yes, yeah, so I think I think the next, there's a guy um, when I was there, Logan Steele, who's supposed to be sort of the next one, one of the next big talents. But I think he's had a bit of problem with with, with injuries and that kind of thing. Uh, Leonard Bologna as well. I'm not sure if he's permanently at Borussia Dortmund second team, but uh, he was he was quite big when when I was there as well. But um, yeah, no one sort of properly made a step up to the first team in a long time. That's true, actually, because you, you think about it, and so many of the signings have made the last sort of two or three years. It's been either either Zweitliga players sort of making the step up or established Bundesliga players sort of lower mid table like Rani Kadira, um, like sort of players like that. So they haven't really had the story of their success hasn't been based around a lot of the academy players being a part of that, which is quite interesting, George. Yeah, no, I was just—it's just a, a, a point on on Berlin in general. I mean, I know that now that um, Jerome Boateng is no longer a part of the national team, I think uh, in a sort of squad of, of twenty-three players, only uh, it's only Antonio Rudiger. Um, in in the German national team that's 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 born and raised in Berlin, um, which for for a city of a population of what like nearly four million, um, and you know, we we all know how big the the amateur and um, and semi pro and sort of lower league scene is in in Berlin. Probably something that's hard to compare anywhere else in Europe. Really, um, it seems it seems there's this kind of a maybe a, a fundamental problem that's um, that someone far more intelligent than myself could explain um, why that would be that, but it just seems, just seems crazy that, that in, there's only one, one player in a, in a 23 man squad, Tony Rudiger. Um, and he had to really get his chance um, outside of Germany, mainly after when he went from Stuttgart to Roma. 
Although, uh, I mean, Hertha, their academy has brought through a few players the last few years, you know, like Mittelstedt. Um, yeah, I remember Luca Nets was meant to be like their next biggest um, talent coming from the academy and he left at like 16 or 17 to go to Borussia Mönchengladbach. So they've clearly... It's clearly I mean, that's the thing, like, yeah, like last sort of five years, Hertha have brought through a few players, but they, they even they've sort of turned their back on the, that sort of route because they looked to they started spending loads of money on sort of already established players instead of that. Um, so it, it does seem a waste that the, the two main clubs haven't been making making the most of the resources that are available. I mean, clearly Berlin, there's going to be so much untapped potential there, and they're just not not making the most of that. That I think it's sort of. Move to the side of what we were talking about there. So the, I think the main issue at point is the deflection of criticism which you saw during that during that case. Uh, and I think we're see, it's sort of a thing I see directed at the club from the critics. Um, there's that there's the Hubner incident last year as well um, when he was alleged to have made racist comments to Nadim Amiri. And I remember the club went particularly strong in coming out against that. So. I mean, he. I thought it was really strange because he was he was absolved of racism, wasn't he? But he still said that he had gone to Mary and apologised. It was quite a quite a strange incident. Yeah. Um, so he was absolved of having said anything racist, but still got banned. So yeah, the, the, it, that would say that whatever was said was not good. And uh, the two players that were involved with that, so that was Florian Hubner and said Toysher, don't play for the club anymore. Uh, and this incident only happened 13 months ago, so I don't know if I, if that's just reading into that too much or whatever. But it did, you know, the, uh, it did bring the club into disrepute and it's, you know, uh, when these when these things play out in the public eye, you know, the this image that people will have had of Onion being this, you know, fairy tale perfect left wing club is because it's absolutely not true. I I would agree with the working class club and and the club is maybe it is representative of its people and of its area. Uh uh for for better and for worse. Um the it's not, you know, uh, it's not one that is left wing. It's not one that is right wing. It's not got a political stance. It has some statutes that uh, maybe don't get don't get has uh, some statutes that maybe you know on pers- uh, personal opinions might say that they aren't strictly followed which uh, with the youth academy stuff the the kind of argument was very much that can't happen because it's in the statutes which is uh, a terrible argument to make just because it's written on paper that that can happen doesn't mean it can uh, and yeah it's yeah again it, a lot of it boils down to to the communications around these things if it was a bit clearer if you know a transcript of what was said come out we'd be able to have a clearer image of what was said and and that um but the dfb sports court decided 
the ban was what what it was. I think two games or something like that. Uh, and but said there was no racism, but you know something bad was said. So yeah, very, you think, very, very much weird. Do you think the club's always been like this, and it's just that the the exposure that it's got in the first division has sort of exposed them to a to a bigger audience, or do you think the club has actually changed a bit in in sort of this? Because what you what you suggest, what you think of it from outside, has got this sort of um, uh, siege mentality to try and stay in the Bundesliga, sort of then um, absolving themselves of any criticism. Yeah. Uh, potentially, uh, it's it's maybe not my place to say on the whole because I came into the club fairly recently. Uh, but yeah started going to games in 2017 started following in 2016 so it's you know I've not been going that long I know on a on personal experiences of uh, fans uh, tend have tended to respond quite some fans this this uh, some fans this is a minority would maybe respond in an unpleasant way to hearing English being spoken in the terraces or, you know, someone wearing an onion shirt and speaking English around the ground or whatever. Um, because uh, there's multiple factors for this, uh, you know, it can be because there's 35, whatever thousand um, members and the stadium only takes 22,000. So, you know, there's very little tickets available for members and maybe they've got a mate that's missed out and they see someone speaking English and think that's bad, which they've no right to. I understand it, but they've no right to, you know, anyone that's there is there because they've bought a ticket and acquired it or would hopefully have acquired it by being a member because since they've been promoted, tickets have only really been available for members. Um, But yeah, usually once you have... A quick conversation about you know why you're at on your own it turns around it's completely positive and a couple of occasions they've went and turned to their mates it was like this you know for myself this guy comes from scotland and supports on your own and like and they're like get out your member card and i've got my member card and they're like that's so cool uh and this and and that that's you know nice and all but it shouldn't come about from an initial hostility um so yeah i the siege mentality maybe it maybe uh comes in there that they they're scared of losing what makes on your special they're scared of you know the stadium becoming like something in you know the premier league where it's a lot of people with their phones out all game and stuff like that um but it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to stop these things when you are successful. Um, there's only so much you can do, uh, and if the club, you know, ends up expanding the stadium and and years to come, you'll need people like these, like that are tourists that are, you know, maybe on stagers or whatever. You'll need them to go to games to help fill out the ground, um, because I think it'd be hard to fill out the 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 ground as to what they've planned the capacity to be so yeah it's it's a bit complex to say the least i think um sorry well i was i was just gonna sorry. i was gonna jump in to say um i think the um the issue of um you know not being well people probably heard about 
issue of, of coming to Germany or going to German games and they're kind of I'd say there's maybe like a what I'm trying to say is there's it's not I don't think the issue of people being a little bit skeptical of people speaking English in the stadium um is exclusive to, to Union um, by any means. I mean I think there's probably um people should probably know that there's like a, an unwritten code of conduct per se of things that you, that you do and you don't you you kind of you I'd say I'd say the main one is in, in general in me Robert and I experienced it when we were at Magdeburg which is for sure a much more hostile place than uh Alta First Rye in my experience um, um a guy looked at us uh, well especially because Magdeburg's in the third division this guy was uh I'd say that's for about the first five seconds quite hostile to, um, to us wondering why we were there but when he found out that Robert and I both spoke German, he was sure to tell us about the fact that he just uh, had an operation uh, on his nose to stop him snoring. And so, and then, so I think the English thing is people can go over that. I think the main thing that people should know is that Germans really don't take well to you uh, really obviously using your phone uh, in um, the stadium or in and around or like taking loads of pictures together or filming like during a celebration or something that's probably the main thing and they want you to sort of be there and immerse yourself um within the culture and they as they don't take well to their what they see as you know their their life and their their football club that they've you know they've been members for for years they don't take well to seeing that that being portrayed as as a product um, so to speak so for that reason they don't want it to be photographed as if it's some sort of um, I, I don't know really, but they they want you to sort of experience it and get, and get involved and try and sing the songs or whatever or have a have a scarf with you or whatever. Um, but um, yeah, I just, just want to say that's that's in my experience anyway. That's not an issue that's um, exclusive to to Udion. Sort of, uh, I was going to say before you started talking, I was going to say um, glad you sort of said about Magdeburg. I don't want to make it over to over simplify it, but do you think it's sort of an east and west issue where you said Union are a product of their community and their area and I think a fan bases of a lot of eastern clubs are quite reluctant in terms of I mean they, they want to retain their identity and a lot of that is a sort of anti-western thing I mean there's probably clubs where this is more of a case like Hansa and Magdeburg where a a large sense of their pride comes from a, a a community identity and they have a lot of anti-Western chants and they associate the West with commercialism. I mean, Union have in their club anthem a line that says, we'll never be bought by the West. Do you think it sort of comes from that? A sort of, as Robert said, the sort of siege mentality that they want to retain that and not sort of become like what they associate as the sort of commercial western clubs um what what i say is that um i mean i, I was going to mention it if we come and talk about fine orders that there's something that's that's universal in football that that some uh, football clubs re- represent a city where the or, or even a part of a city in some cases that the fans are disproportionately proud of or, or, or more proud of or kind of in, a, in a where it sort of manifests in a way that they're kind of defensive about it and they don't they want every they don't want anyone to feel comfortable there who's not from that part or doesn't identify with that with that city and that that is this the the case for Rotterdam as I've as I've found out um 
I wouldn't generalize for, for the whole of the East. I mean, um, Babelsberg is in Brandenburg, um, and in the, in the former East is one of Germany's most most left wing um, and um, tolerant, um, diverse clubs. Um, and you know they have a big um, rivalry of uh, Cottbus for that reason because of the uh, polarization between those two clubs. But there is probably something to be said for the fact that. Um, you know the, the 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 pride that comes with um you know because east east germans tend without getting too deep into it do tend to feel a bit um um sort of detract, detracted from from the rest of germany and that that sort of means that they have a so pride in their city that maybe uh, cities in the in in the west don't have but i mean i i only had a a i had a largely positive experience at Magdeburg. I mean, I think if you went to somewhere like uh, Dresden, that probably wouldn't be. I wouldn't recommend. I don't imagine that's the safest place for um, women and children, especially, uh, which is unfortunate because that's um, you know I think football stadiums should well should should always be um, safer places for for women and children as they're not. And I think a lot of German grounds are, are guilty of, of of not creating safe spaces for for women and, and children and everyone really. Um, so yeah, I've been. I don't really have an answer because it's easy for me as a as a well to be honest as a bloke to say that it's like it's easier to go and someone that can speak German is easier for me. But um, I think if you were a, a female tourist, I wouldn't especially recommend going to many of the clubs in the East, for example. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, we're talking about this, and I, I don't I don't know whether I should. I was just saying this with taking a break there I'm, I'm not sure it's easier for us to say than generalize about the east us like having never experienced what a lot of the people of a certain age has experienced there living in a dictatorship so it's quite easy to us to have a, a bit of a sneer and attitude um, and generalize but uh, sometimes that's unfair but I, I think it's definitely fair to say that I mean in, in certain grounds that is a more of an initial attitudes i know robert uh, you were wanting to come in yeah no that was because you were asking in, in the break as well um if there are any particular experiences and sort of linking to what i was saying before about me being a naive 20 year old is the last game of the season when i was there was dresden away and i because when you're when you're working at the club you can get tickets i think it's for every game at least one ticket and so yeah, I got a ticket for Dresden away and told my colleagues in the academy on the Friday afternoon. And they're like, oh, yeah, so who are you going with? And I said, I'm going on my own. And they said, I'm not sure about that. But yeah, so I went, uh, went partying in a now defunct uh, club in Berlin called Griesmüller on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, Saturday evening, sorry. That was uh, the day that Hartsfeld got relegated from the Bundesliga as well. Um, <laughs> and then I, I see Carl cheering. Great um, day, a, gr- a, gr- a great day. <laughs> and, Love a bit uh, of Hartsfeld slander. Love a bit. <laughs> had about two hours sleep and was on the the classic interrail train, which goes from Berlin to Budapest. And I was I was a bit out of place on a on a very hot May day in my uh, in my Union shirt. And um, but yes, yeah, so and once I got to Dresden, I had to put my sort of thin Nike jacket over the top. And because uh, Dresden's actually a very, very pretty city, um, I think it's yeah, it's really interesting that it's got that sort of mix of old Eastern architecture, sort of really wide um, areas, but also sort of quite nice. Uh, I think it's Gothic architecture. But yes, yeah, so then also I, was, I sat down by the river, and just the whole Dresden 
uh, squad, including Uwe Neuhaus, just walked past me as well. And I, th- I thought I was having a fever dream. So I'd had sort of two hours sleep at that point. And uh, yeah, then walked to the ground uh, from the city centre. And just as I was about to get to the ground, there were like uh, 10 police officers just dragging about 10 Dresden fans outside of uh, out of what seemed like bushes. They just like come from nowhere. It was just a crazy experience. And um, yeah, after the game, I think the Union fans, because Union won 1-0 through Philip Posner, I think, but um, had to be kept in the had to be kept in the ground for an hour afterwards, which I'd never experienced in English or German football before. So yeah, just generally, generally crazy experience. But yeah, so what, what we were talking about before, I think um, I experienced that Union as well. You definitely do get that hostility, but it's generally more from older people and sort of linking to what Carl said before. I think it's quite interesting because I feel like they're hostile initially at the beginning, but then also once you get to know them or tell them that, or you can speak German, um, they actually then become more friendly than perhaps some people in the West do, which I think is sort of a, a strange dichotomy. Um, and also then, yeah, I was, I was just in Berlin over the, over the summer. And I think possibly another factor that plays into it, because as I said before, there's sort of multiple factors at work here, but also sort of the rapid gentrification in the, in the, in the East of Berlin, you see how the city is rapidly changing and it's just not the city that, they grew up in especially sort of older people from from eastern germany i mean i was really surprised how much it had changed in the three years since i've been away so i guess that's possibly a factor that isn't maybe as true in sort of places like magdeburg and dresden yeah i'm sure i heard sure i had a statistic that like so it's not like the majority of people in berlin weren't born there and i think that's quite interesting um, and I think that probably plays an impact in Union seeing themselves more as a, a Kupernik club rather than a Berlin club. I don't think that's true, Kyle. Um, it's a complicated one. I would say that um, most accurately they would say they're both, but uh, the, the the majority of fan base would say they were both. But uh, yeah, a, pro- a product of the history and stuff like that. But uh, saying about, you know, stadiums being, you know, unsafe for like women and children, I can, I can honestly say that on your own, I've, I've never seen, a, particularly comparing it to the UK, I've not seen so many women and children at the football as I do on your own. Uh, and that's in, throughout the stadium, be it in the, in the ultras block, uh, or well, the block that the ultras are in, uh, the the forest side of the stadium or the Gagan Grada. Um I haven't spent a game down beside the away fans, but I imagine it's also the same there. Um that yeah, the and it is, you know if you don't have your phone out, you'll be fine. And you'll enjoy it. Uh, learn a few songs before you go. Uh, the Onion and English website, which uh did the podcast with those guys uh, in the past is a great resource if you do end up going someday and it is a good day out and it's a good ground and that as long as you're not constantly spending your time taking photographs and you know if you have a bit of German you shouldn't yeah or even a couple of words and you're not rude they'll have no issue if you're rude yeah you'll have an issue uh, as you would have an issue at any other football ground across the world I would imagine uh, and what Robert was saying about gentrification is definitely something, again, there was the chat about siege mentality, but Onion itself is not immune to things like this. Uh, like we're a couple of us are wearing Onion shirts here and 
Uh, their sponsor at the moment is a company called The Roundtown, which is just a giant landlord company. Um, I I personally am not comfortable with that. Uh, I know a good portion of the fan base isn't comfortable with that, but this is this is where we are, and it you know that it's little things like that show that Oton isn't a left wing club because you know if I, if the club was truly left wing, you know people would you know there would be more action from the club. The, the club wouldn't sign a landlord as a sponsor, particularly given. Berlin's housing situation and you could go on for ages about that not a German football podcast but there's plenty of podcasts and videos out there about referendums and stuff like that uh, yeah having having a landlord as a sponsor is, uh, isn't cool but you know kind of yeah it, it shows that the Union isn't uh, immune to to these sort of things in football I was a pretty Pretty good discussion on the, the discussion of identity and the, the ground experience. Uh, just slightly moving on from that, uh, I know George, you had a bit of a bit of a story about the the Feyenoord's game. I know we talked about the Conference League experience earlier, uh, but the Feyenoord away trip made a few headlines, didn't it? Yeah, so it was interesting because um, the Maccabee game was the second game that Union played. In the, uh, they, they lose the first game to Sparta Prague, then this so then Maccabi Haifa was the second game, and that was when you know they had been um, that one um, man was arrested for um, trying to burn an Israeli flag, doing Nazi salutes. Um, a few other fans, well, I think it was several fans, were arrested for um, Volksverhetzung, which is like um, like hate crimes, in, in, incitement. Um, and they received um, that. That was taken up by the by the um, Berlin authorities. And the next game at home that they played against final. Funny enough, that that block, um, the two blocks there, was replaced with a no to racism sign. Um, as, but then, what was interesting is that the next game they played was away to Feyenoord in Rotterdam, where the tables essentially uh, completely completely turned um the, the day before um was when the headline started when um Dirk Singler the president of Union was uh oh he was with around uh 25 others in a bar attacked by a load of Feyenoord um ultras or uh hooligans um one Union fan I don't know I'm not sure if it was a fan or part of the part of Dirk Singler's posse um but he had to go to hospital um, uh, something that the club, I've got to say, did distance themselves from as they tended to do with most of the incidents that would happen afterwards. Um, and then I think yeah, uh, cl- club club staff member, I'm re- reliably informed. Um, um, and then, yeah, so and then on the day of the game, uh, I believe that there was 2,500 Union fans there. And when the final, when the, when the game started, 2,400 of them. Were still waiting outside, uh, being having issues with uh, with the police. I think two hundred people missed the first half entirely. Uh, reports people getting attacked by dogs and um, yeah, Union fans being arrested for um, what the the uh, Rotterdam police said was them trying to attack the police. But I think that, by all accounts, seems to have been um, started entirely on the on the side of the police. So 59 people arrested for that reason, 16 people arrested for reasons relating to having pyro and 
so-called vandalism um yeah it was um i mean one thing i wanted to say though is that i recently watched the small documentary on youtube called ausfets in europa um the union put out which was about the their their travels and their whole experience of being in the conference league and they went through game by game and um they were very uh christian arbeit was very um quick to after after this sort of section in the in the documentary to say that he believed that the, one of the reasons they lost that game is that the, the players had been affected by um what had happened and how terrible it had been for the all the union fans which it which it was um but after the section of the, the Maccabi Haifa game um there was kind of a deafening silence that nothing was mentioned about what had happened um which i thought was quite um disappointing and I know, I know we've kind of been shitting on union for a while here but um i think that that stood out to me um and then the the game um the the return leg uh in berlin there was apparently 5000 um final fans which required 2000 um heavily armed police in berlin um there was a big escalation in hackerschmarkt um the day before 182 people arrested and the following day uh, 139 people arrested and uh, there was the spray painting of the Berlin Wall which I think made headlines most prominently because that's um, sort of uh, a codified breaking of, of quite uh, sacred German law to, to um, yeah to, to graffiti such an important uh, monument in the city of Berlin that then got kind of jumped on the bandwagon with like Hata fans and uh, BFC Dynamo fans, I believe. Um, and so, yeah, the whole thing was just, if, I mean, you think the Union only played, what, um, six games in the Conference League. Um, well, the home game against Maccabi and the, the two games against Feyenoord made more headlines for what happened off the pitch. So that's half the games uh, made more ha- um, headlines for what happened off the pitch than, than what happened on them. Albeit Union did did get a result against Feyenoord, but I think um, if I was an Union fan, I'd be really gutted that um, you know they've waited so long to play in Europe and that the headlines have been taken by you know the firstly the anti-Semitism in the Maccabi game and then what seemed like an absolute away day from hell in in Feyenoord, and then everything kicking off again in in, in Berlin. Um, yeah, I mean, but like I said, I don't I don't have it from the experience of. Um, um, an Union fan, um, which um, Carl will probably be able to say something on that, but I think, um, yeah, it was. Yeah, I just, I, I personally feel like it was disappointing, and they had to, the, you know, the ninety nine point nine percent of fans that didn't do anything wrong at all had to sort of have the attention or the limelight taken away from them, and t- have to talk about all the all the all the stuff with final and with Maccabi Haifa. Um, yeah, it's sort of, I guess, being the Scottish football pod, that group also contains Slavia Prague, who were notorious for their actions this season before, or their players' actions this season before, in a tie against Rangers. Um, yeah, the the incident against Haifa was disgusting. Um, there's no other way to, to put it. Um, the one thing that we've spoke about communication in the past there seemed to be a lesson learned when it came to this one because even during the game, the club was engaging with the, those who'd reported these uh, these incidents, um, which was uh, quite positive to see. 
those that those that were identified all received banning orders from the club, which I have not seen in in a. In, I, I maybe have not been looking out for it, but I haven't seen a ban and order being placed by the club in, or at least publicly announced by the club in the whole time I've been supporting them. Uh, and they issued plenty in, in a week, which was really good to... Well, no, really good's the wrong word. It's the right thing to do. It's the least you can do. Um, but it shouldn't have happened in the first place. And again, this you know, can kind of come to the... What what do we need to do as a society to stop anti-Semitism and stuff like that? But it's it's a big it's a big conversation. Uh, and then yeah, the Fire Nord stuff where you know there was uh, the the Fire Nord game there was anti-Semitic chants coming from the Fire Nord fans. Uh, I know mates of mine who had to leave the uh, who were in the home end had to leave the game and just feeling uh, feeling completely uncomfortable in the in the situation they had no colors on and that but felt so uncomfortable that they had to leave which you know no, no game of football should be like that you would hope um then and yeah locking fans in a cage uh, missing the whole first half with no access to uh food or water or toilets or anything like that it's uh, it was pretty disgusting and yeah the with the the Haifa games, it, it was it, in particular it really was a sour note because everything before uh, and everything in the away game as well was really positive. You know, this is the first Israeli team that was playing in the Olympia Stadium, which is an incredibly momentous occasion. Uh, given the historical context of the stadium, like you mentioned earlier, George, uh, and it was uh, absolutely gutting to have something that had been really positive before and there was a lot of friendships raised about it and I think these are these are things that for the majority of the fan base carried over into the away leg uh, where there's plenty of videos of people outside the ground before the game exchanging scarves not even not even afterwards but um, it, yeah it just it's so disappointing and, and this is something that we, we've spoken about before George that you know, uh, so many, so many good things happening on the park and that, and then there, it seemed it seemed for a while that then it will be ruined because something ridiculous will happen afterwards, and you you get disappointed again. Like there was, you know, there's been there's been plenty of incidences uh, this season, and it is you know, one person here or a couple of people there, and and that, but. Uh, it still doesn't make it right, and it, uh, the club, you know, isn't perfect, and they how they communicate these things is maybe improving, and you know, the send, sending the right signals uh, in future, like uh, with the high fence, and you know, it, getting in, uh, like completely open and transparent throughout it, which was something we hadn't seen from the cases we've mentioned previously. Um, but then, you know, you would like to hope in this ideal world that people like these don't go to Onion, but they do. <laughs> the The club, you know, for, for better or worse, doesn't inherently exclude anyone. Um, and unfortunately that... Uh, it gives an idea that you know some people who've less than 
listen, you know, poor opinions about the world or people and that do go and some of the some of the pandemic chat uh, as well, you know, the campaigning for full attendance as the grounds, I don't think it was an inherently wrong thing uh, with the idea that, you know, you ask for full and you get to a smaller amount because even the situation now, it seems weird knowing that, you know, Celtic are playing this evening with 60,000 people at Celtic Park and in Berlin, there will be only 3,000 people at the Derby on Wednesday night. It seems a bit strange and I'm no epidemiologist in that, but I I don't think that that conversation or the general crux of that conversation is necessarily bad, but uh, unfortunately that's been picked up by some of the the worst people in in terms of like the the AFD and so on that uh, Onion kind of aligns with their values, which they don't, but on this particular topic, um, it was maybe it, it was maybe not the the common thing to say, um, and and here we are, the mild and controversy over asking for people to go to the football, which you know it's outside. It shouldn't be the hardest thing. I think um, I think it's kind of a really important point when it comes to how we talk about especially German football um, in general, because you know, I think we all are probably guilty of, you know, we're all people that are, aren't German, but have, have come to love the German game. And therefore we have a tendency to, to over romanticize um, certain aspects of it. And I think what comes of that is that there's also a tendency to, to make sort of sweeping generalizations as we've already spoken about that, you know, we've heard of it. We're all slightly sick to death of hearing it. You know, when you say, Union, they say, oh yeah, they're that left wing club who literally, you know, took blood to build their own stadium and blah blah blah. And then, then, you know, it's it's you, you know, there's people at Union who will like say burn Israeli flags and do Hitler salutes. There's people probably within every club within you know the top three four flights of Germany that will have a very very small section um, like that. That's why you often see. Um, you know, in, in most most clubs in Germany, there's um, a fan group that will be called like uh, all the 1861s called Lohm fans gegen rechts, like so, like the name of the club and get, um, against the the right wing, and that's a you see that um, there's a especially big one at Hasfeld, given that they've often had um, you know right wing um, claims um, pointed their way for for often the right reasons and often for unfounded reasons um to yeah not not to to generalize like that and it be even if you look at uh, clubs like like Pauli who would be considered one of the, you know the most um, left-wing club in Germany um and are not without um their own their own wrongdoings and without um people um within their within their ranks that um I mean, wasn't there? There was there was a sexism incident with um, Pauli quite recently, wasn't it? Someone could probably um, talk about that a bit more. But and you know, even we were in the um, club shop um, at Pauli a couple of months ago um, when Colin was here, and it's yeah, it's difficult to market yourself as as a left wing club when when the the replica shirt costs ninety five or hundred euros. You know, it's the I think it's something that you know everyone that. The, the you know loves German football like we do is so keen to to romanticize it because it is you know I think unquestionably better in a lot of aspects in the British game but I think 
that often leads to these kind of blanket terms when it comes to saying, you know, the, this club's really good, this set of fans are really good. I think it's important to realise that as in, in life, there's, you know, there's always going to be people that want to, um, you know, often just contrarians that want to um, stand out from the crowd. And, but, you know, a lot of the times there's often, you know, very good people. I think that's, you know, going back to Union, I could say that's definitely the case with them. I would, yeah, I would say just a big moral of the story is just not to generalise, just take everything, even though sorry, I sort of did that earlier, that um, they're not a, not a left-wing club, not a right-wing club. They've got elements of both, and for whatever unpleasant element there is that we've covered, we've sort of sent, spent most of the episode bashing them a wee bit, but that's only going to be a minority and then and these clubs that we do mention as a minority, um, and you don't truly know until you experience it in person what the experience is actually like, and when you meet the people and talk to them, what the fans are. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone else had any further comments about this issue. I know it's. I think I think the only thing that would missed out was uh, the. Bratwurst comments that Dirk Tingler had made, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that requires any further depth. Yeah, I can just well, I just fill that one, fill that one in. Uh, that was uh, I think it was last week. Uh, um, he said football for us means Bratwurst beer, ninety minutes of football. We won't fulfil every wish, and we also won't use non-gender specific language. Um, so yeah, a few. Yeah, Dirk, Dirk Tingler's come up with a few strange things. Uh, well. I think that's a bit beyond strange. Um, but also, yeah, over the summer, they were, uh, the Union had a training camp in Austria and he said it was nice that uh, there wasn't any restrictions uh, and I hope there's the same when we come back to Germany and that kind of thing. So that was the last question I wanted to ask um, Kyle, actually, was if um, if he had any sort of, because um, that's something I don't really know from outside his perspective, as a, is the Union fans generally for Dirk Tingler? Uh, still, or I guess that's that's quite a, quite a big question, but uh, yeah, your thoughts on that? Uh, I personally am done with his shit. Um, you know, uh, he's done a lot of good for the club. Uh, he's been there since what two thousand four. Um, you know, he's staved off bankruptcy and things like this, and you know, built the, helped build the club to what it is now. But you know, every time he opens his mouth, I cringe uh, there's like the Bratwurst thing that that was something that was said at the at the AGM you know and it's, uh, he just repeated it in the press um, which you know yeah on, on a, uh, the the beer Bratwurst in 90 minutes of football yeah personally is fine but the that is not that is not affected by having a vegan sausage option like <laughs> and there's already vegetarian options at the ground and, and this and you know they've a fish stand and things like this so you know it, it's not just beer bratwurst and 90 minutes of football there's already other options so what uh, and the sponsor that does the bratwurst already has a vegan option so there is no issue with implementing this uh but he it's decided that you know he's gonna fight up for the the rights of meat um <laughs> 
in terms of in terms of the onion opinion on Dirk Sinclair, I cannot speak for the fan base. Uh, I know in my my group pals that support onion, we are getting a bit sick of it as well. Um, I would have been curious to know how the AGM would have got, would have gone this year if um, if people were able to go. It was another virtual AGM, but I. Yeah, um, I would be curious to know how that would have gone where fans could voice concerns uh, with some of Dirk's comments because, yeah, as much as I said previously that, you know, I, I don't inherently agree, or I didn't inherently disagree with some of the arguments about getting fans into the ground, there was still some questionable reasoning for why they didn't move to, to 2G uh, when it was possible for full attendances, why they stuck with fifty percent in three G, there was some quite you know there was some questionable campaignings for full attendances at the wrong times, but then opposing that at the start of the pandemic, uh, as was shown in the documentary that was on uh, that was shown on BT Sport in the UK and uh, uh, it's in Germany is uh, available I think. I think in the Onion web Onion website still uh, as it it is Onion Verstete. Uh they said to the players that you guys will be the last to be paid, you know, straight up at the start of the pandemic and backing the workers uh, of the club before the footballers. So <laughs> it's a complicated one, but I, th- I personally would would like to see a change. But then there is also a, a trepidation that. Does that change bring a bit of instability to the club and that? But at the same time, I would also like Dirk Sengler to stop chatting chat crap. I, I was just, I was just thinking. Um, I mean, I know that every time you watch a, an Union game, you see that there's there's one banner on on the side of the pitch. There's pretty much it's. I'm right. I said every game there they've got it's and it's almost always. Um, Using that that that's the, the the way the camera's facing, so they've they're gonna they're making a point about something, whether it's fifty plus one, whether it's whatever. Um, I know that the ultras, um, as is a, a universal um, sort of um, pillar for for ultras, is that they won't go to the stadiums unless they can be completely full. Um, and I I know that obviously that's something that I've seen the, the Union ultras being particularly um, vocal about. I wondered if you thought that maybe. The, the if the if it's maybe that the ultras at union or maybe in general but in, in this case of union when it comes to you know the full attendances and you know like you said they're not moving to 2g and them they're sticking with with 3g whether you think that their their role within the club um their influence is potentially too too big that they work to disadvantage the club as a whole very good question. I honestly, I honestly, am not sure. Um, I'm not. I, I can, I can see why, but I, I, I wouldn't know for definite. Um, I know they do have a big say in how the clubs run, uh, or not, not so much how the clubs run, but they do have a, a big say in some matters with the club, uh, and that they, you know. You see it in terms of the banner being up in the pitch every week. Um, even though the ultras aren't in attendance themselves, there's always that banner. Like at the weekend, it was arguing uh, four fifty plus one uh, uh, since they were playing Hoffenheim, which does not adhere to adhere to such things. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, but uh, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, they haven't attended uh, as in an organised sense the a, a game uh, as a, as a collective fully since the start of the pandemic. Um, and they didn't. It wasn't organised against uh, against the the only game Union did at two G uh, with full attendance was the, the derby last time round, which they didn't attend because of issues with two G. And I, I I see the point about you know not wanting to exclude people. Uh, I don't personally agree with it, but I can see it. Uh, but I don't. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't have the, an answer for that one. I'm afraid. Yeah, because I just think. I mean, if I mean, I can imagine if if it was. I mean, the ultras obviously make up a relatively small portion of the entire um, membership base or the fan base. Um, it seems there seems something slightly, um, you know, democratically or meritocratically uh, unfair about if if in general the most of the fan base would prefer just in this particular instance, but it's the the case for for many other things for, you know, um, there to be 2G so more people could be into the stadium if if the overwhelming majority were for that. But, um, you know, the the club hierarchy were worried about um, stepping on the toes of the the ultras. It just seems like that's potentially um, a bit of a a bit of a sticky issue that's that's kind of difficult to go over. But, I mean, inherent in the nature of ultras, the... you can't really negotiate with them. They, they don't really tend to do too well, too well with external people telling them what to do. So I'm not really sure that's well. It's certainly not an issue that we can solve on this podcast. So maybe maybe it was a bit of a uh, pointless question, but I think it's a, it's an interesting question in general. The the role that ultras play in in German football because yeah, we all we, we 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 laud them a lot of the time for that for the actions they do they're the most usually the most engaged people in the clubs in terms of doing very good causes and they are responsible for creating very good atmospheres but there's potentially a, a question to consider whether their role is or their influences can can also have a negative so that i mean that that was a that was a very interesting discussion and i think that brings it to a natural conclusion so we've been going out for quite a while about issues surrounding the club and its identity uh, perceptions and the media perceptions in the UK which are perhaps a bit different than back in Germany uh, so I think we'll move on from that just probably start closing off now uh, closing up closing up like it's a, a shop um, just before we before we before we finish, uh, I think probably head back to the derby game. I think it, this game comes at quite an interesting time for the two clubs. Um, Union looked to be heading upwards. Hertha, the opposite, sort of stagnating. The Windhorst project has looked to have failed. Uh, where do you see it in the future going? Do you think this is the natural order and it will be sustained, or? Can you see Union that's been quite a, a short-lived period of dominance in the city? Uh, I want to say the first option, but I suspect it's more towards the second. Um, you know, Hertha, Hertha is, you know, mild and complete mismanagement and has been for the last few years. Um, Lars Vindhorst is 
in pumping so much money into the club and they literally don't know what to do with it and they've wasted 300 million euros uh, down the drain or whatever it is, 350, whatever. Lots of money anyways. Um, I do I do believe part of Hertha's issue is their lack of a of a home ground. You know, they rent the Olympia Stadium from the city. You know, there there is sort of rough plans to to build them like fifty thousand seater stadium uh, in the vicinity of the of the Olympia Stadium, which would be a, a big thing for them and maybe something they could have spent Lars Winter's money on instead of crap players. Um, but with with Onion, uh, given that the the fan base is is smaller, even if the membership numbers are pretty steady between both clubs uh, and uh, you need a membership to go and see Onion. You don't need a membership to go and see Hertha, for example. So there's more incentive to take a membership with Onion. Um, what, uh, I feel that if there... I, I worry about if there's a change in coach, maybe not so much, although uh there, I would imagine there'd be some drop off because uh, Urs Fisher is one of the best coaches, in my opinion, in the world. Um, what he's done with with Onion is nothing short of incredible. Oliver Runer as well, an incredible director of football. Uh, so, yeah, I would worry about what would happen if they were no longer there. But that being said, um, it wouldn't change how, you know, a lot, a, a lot of the fan base would still go to Union, particularly those that were there, you know, before that haven't come in in the last maybe five years or so, would still go because you would hope that some things would never change. That it is a vibrant atmosphere, that it's a sing-song from the fir- first whistle until twenty minutes after the last whistle. That there's not a quiet second. It's full force behind the team. No one's. Not a, not a boo. You don't boo a player. You you don't you know attack one of your own. Uh, you kind of rally around them and support them. Which you know this season, the last couple of seasons, for example, there's always been a lot of support around Andreas Luter, who's had a couple of notable errors, uh, but then comes up with some incredible performances as well. The weekend just passed was a great performance from him, and uh, that. But then you know for people that maybe only watched Onion uh, in the Conference League, given that there's only one Onion game being on telly in the UK this year that wasn't in Europe, and uh, that was the Derby, because Sky are terrible. Uh, you know, you you maybe see the Fire Nerd game and the, and the error there, uh, but then he gets support from the fan base and is able to respond in a way that shows up tremendous performances the last couple of weeks. Uh, and at other times as well, like the game where Union secured European football last season against uh, against the market construct. Now, slipped the tongue there. Um, he was incredible as well. But for the moment, yeah, I see it being in Union's favour. Um, even you know, last season uh, and the season before, they like they won the first derby in the Bundesliga with a, a late penalty, thanks to a mistake from Dedra Boyata, which was a shock to anyone that's it's no <laughs> shock to anyone that's watched him play football before. He loves a mistake. 
Um, and I'll always remember because I couldn't believe that it was Boyata that, that, that made the mistake. It was too good to be true. Um, but then, you know, lost lost the Ghost Derby in the Olympia Stadium, lost at the Olympia Stadium uh, again after Robert Andrish decided that he wanted to kick someone's head off uh, and didn't get a yellow for it. He got red, sadly. Um, yeah, uh, they haven't had maybe the the best results in the derbies previously, but this season, particularly the the, the well, there's only been one derby so far, but the the last derby there was there were miles the better team, and I, I reckon that's how it's going to be for the next while at least, and this may only be for a few years until you know Hertha needs a rebuild, and that might come through relegation, but they do have. You know, strengthen a, a strong academy and and that that they can build with. And if they were to invest their money a bit better and and that, then they could do something. If they, yeah, if they had good management and and things like this. Um, but I'll enjoy it while it while it lasts, and uh, I hope it lasts forever. <laughs> I suppose you thought the employment of Freddie Bovic might. Signify a, a turn in their signal a, a turn in their fortunes. Uh, I mean, it's not happened yet. To me, I think the the main question is whether Union can what what how they'll fare in the next few years. Obviously, Rose Fisher, you mentioned if he has to believe how they would cope with that. Hertha, I can only really see them continuing being a midland Bundesliga side. It's whether Union can be the same. I don't think they're going to sustain what they are just now, like chasing through Europe and stuff. I think that's just not going to happen over the long term. But whether Union can sustain themselves in the top flight or whether they go back to being a second-tier side in the long term, uh, and that's going to be what the dynamic of the derby is based on. Uh, Although Hertha could end up relegated as well uh, if they continue to waste money. I mean, so many of the players that they've spent so much money on have already left, which I think shows a lot. But just in the short term, have you got a prediction for Wednesday night? It'll be the first win in the Olympia Stadion uh, since the derbies in the Zweite Liga. And I will go... Oof. Onion win on penalties. Oh. <laughs> Does that count as a win? Um, I, I, I'm between Onion winning on penalties or like a thumping. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Robert, it's election. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go for a, a one nil Onion win. George. I liked how nice and uh, concise that was. Probably speaking about uh, one one hundredth of the of the analysis that um, that Kyle gave. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I was just looking at the whilst you were talking there, just looking at the um, team news. So that um, um, Sardar and Boateng are both going to be um, back available. Sardar's probably been one of Hertha's um, standout players well probably one of the only standout players in what's been a pretty miserable season for them um um again and uh Ken Camp the um super subs also available once more um I think it's going to be difficult for um I mean I saw that um 
the Awani scored against Sudan on another day. So, but him him, him um, being out might be. I mean, who'd have thought that? What is that is One sentence, please. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm going, I'm doing a long way of saying that I hadn't thought about that until you just asked me, because um, I'd actually kind of forgotten that any other cup games were happening apart from the 1860 game. Um, so I will say that um, um, Hertha will win after a nil-nil on penalties after a nil-nil. I'm going to go for a, a 1-0 Hertha win. Dejo Boyata <laughs> scoring the winner. I'm not even sure if he's... I'm not even sure if he's currently fit, but... Uh, <laughs> if he's... Uh, I mean, whatever happens, he's, he's going he's gonna to score a, a late winner just just to uh, redeem himself after the... We have no way that penalty a couple of years ago. Yeah, Kicker uh, kicker has him... Uh, 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 kicker predicts him to uh, to start on the bench. Well, there we go. There we go. It's It's going to come true. I think that, that ties it up, those hard-hitting predictions. Um, my last last appearance ended with some bold predictions for the Rook Runda. This one ends with some bold predictions. Will Fogel's armour start? Will Behren start? Will Dedrick Boeta score a goal? Will Dedrick Boeta score a, uh, give away a penalty? Who knows? It, it's all, it's all going to happen on Wednesday night. But I enjoyed the discussion uh, during this episode. Uh, we look forward to a big week of Pokal action, including 1860 Munich versus Karlsruhe, Hertha BSC against Union Berlin. Uh, and as ever, thanks for George and Robert coming on tonight, but special thanks to Kyle for his insight and guest appearance. It was appreciated. And to all the listeners, thanks for listening. Well, and we'll see you again soon. Again here, yet again.